Welcome to Mountain State Cardboard, a podcast about sports, sports cards, and life from the Mountain State of West Virginia. If you're looking for guaranteed hot picks and lead pipe lock advice on the next big thing in sports cards, just turn around now. This isn't the show for you. This is a fun conversation about the hobby we all love. Episode 15 of Mountain State Cardboard is on the air. I'm Tim. This is my podcast about sports, sports cards, and life. Welcome to the show. Glad you're here. If you would be so kind, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at WV Cardboard. You can email me, wvcardboard at gmail.com. Check out the website, wvcardboard.com. Connect with me. Let's have a conversation. Welcome to the show, everybody. Glad you're here for another week. Uh, super excited about this show. I, I wrote up a bunch of notes um, over the weekend because I picked up um, a really meaningful addition to my PC this week that I'm going to talk at length about uh, in the main segment of the show today. Uh, but just off the uh, off jump, we have a new world champions, the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, winning the 2020 World Series, Game 6, good stuff. And uh, now we head into the baseball offseason. And I think for me and for a lot of baseball fans, the offseason is really uh, a very interesting time. And I I enjoy baseball's offseason. I miss baseball, and I'll be excited when spring rolls around and we get back to playing games again. But I actually really dig the offseason. I love the transactional nature of it. I love the hot stove league. But it's going to look a lot different this year. Um, for a couple of different reasons, obviously, the biggest being um, COVID-19 and the shortened season this year. And you heard a lot of talk about teams losing money um, in 2020. That is all relative. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But there's going to be a lot less money spent in the offseason this year. Um, And I think that there are a whole lot of owners who have been looking forward to this day because at the end of the day, they don't want to spend any more money than they have to because then they can funnel other money into their non-baseball business interests. And I'm very much a cynic when it comes to this in that I see this sort of progression. Baseball, as we knew it in the last several decades, is changing radically. And we're going to look at 2020 as the year that the scales really tipped um, when it comes to Major League Baseball. And you see teams developing non-baseball monetary interests. Uh, Many of them are getting into the real estate game, and it's less about the baseball and more about the stadium and the real estate around the stadium and how that can be developed and how that can then become non-baseball revenue so that as teams make money on the non-baseball side of the ledger, that money does not have to go back into the players. That money does not become part of revenue sharing. That money does not become part of um, uh, the collective bargaining agreement. Like The non-baseball revenue has become more important because they don't have to share it. So with all of that being said, and then a lot of talk, and there was a couple of really big articles in the last week to 10 days about lost revenue and increased owner debt, However, you have to look at all of that stuff through a, a, a pretty narrow lens because a lot of that debt was accumulated on the non-baseball side. So while 
owners cry poor on the baseball side, they're making more money on the non-baseball side, but that's not being translated to salaries for the players. You look at what happened in Boston last year with the, the Red Sox trading a generational talent in Mookie Betts for little to nothing, frankly. I mean, let's be honest, Alex Verdugo might become a very serviceable major league player, but he's not going to be Mookie Betts. But they traded him because they wanted payroll flexibility. Basically, they didn't want to pay Mookie Betts. They wanted the uh, 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 the all-star player of payroll flexibility. They wanted to save money. That's why they shipped Mookie Betts to L.A. And you can see the Yankees are starting. When the Yankees start making rumblings about how they can't afford to keep Giancarlo Stanton, and that happened this week, Stanton opted in to the last part of his contract, and I'm not going to go too far down the road of major league contracts because, A, it can get mind-numbing, and B, I don't even have a complete grasp of it, but I know enough to know that Giancarlo Stanton opted in to the last seven years of his deal, which means the Yankees are on the hook unless they just outright release him. When the Yankees start crying poor about not being able to pay a player, that's when you know you've got problems. And that's when you know that there's something afoot, and I'm not going to go so far as to say it's collusion, but uh, that's when you know there's something afoot with owners not wanting to pay players. Now, there's a wild card that's been thrown in because uh, Steve Cohn, who bought the Mets, has, has basically started ponying up dough already they've rehired i don't know if you've seen this story but the mets have re not rehired but reinstated all of the salaries from everybody from secretaries and security guards all the way up through the baseball operations office they had taken a pay cut during COVID 19 cohen bought the mets in first order of business restore everybody's salaries the whole thing is going to cost him about seven million dollars but the goodwill that he just built up with his entire baseball operation staff is immeasurable and he's already hinted that he's going that the Mets will spend money on players this year and I think everybody else is going to ratchet that down so that'll be interesting to watch so owners are going to spend less money the other thing that I think will be interesting to watch this year is what happens with baseball's playoff system in the offseason do they make some of the changes that happened this year because of COVID-19 and the shortened season do they make those moves permanent do they expand these playoffs permanently and let teams in that in past years would not have made the playoffs i mean you had two teams with losing records make the playoffs this year in major league baseball if that happens just keep an eye on this and we're going to get into cards i promise but you know i like to start the show just sort of musing about what's going on in the world of sports keep a close eye on what major league baseball does with the playoffs this year because to make permanent the expanded playoffs is a shift toward rewarding mediocrity and further incentivizes owners to pay players less because with an expanded playoffs like we had this year and if this year was a one-off fine and I get it because it was a weird year and they're just trying to get something accomplished but if that expanded playoff system becomes permanent There is less incentive to pay good players to win more games because you can slip into the playoffs with a losing record, and then it's anybody's ballgame. So if the playoffs are expanded and mediocrity is rewarded, that will further push down and deflate player salaries, 
while owners continue to make more and more money, especially on the non-baseball side. It's just, I'm a very pro-labor guy. And when I see this all happening in this landscape, you start putting the pieces together and you see that the players are, start, are about to start making less money as the owners make more. Um, the other thing from baseball this week, and then we'll move on, uh, A.J. Hinch hired as the manager of the Detroit Tigers. So I guess we're just cool now with the Astros uh, conducting the most egregious cheating uh, system in modern Major League Baseball history. Uh, because Hinch has been rehired uh, pretty quickly after a one-year suspension. So I guess we're just cool with that now at the uh, Major League level because A.J. Hinch can help the Tigers win. And the Tigers are an interesting situation. They've got some some young players coming up through the system. They might be competitive in a couple of years the way the White Sox were competitive this year. Um, And then the other thing that uh, happened this week on the managerial front, Tony La Russa hired by the White Sox. 76-year-old Tony LaRusso, who has not been a manager since 2011. And the only thing that bothers me about that, guys, is, and and I've shown my stripes on this podcast on multiple occasions, these were two pretty quick hires as soon as the offseason was over, and I really saw no news of any real credible consideration given to minority candidates. Uh, I saw I saw nothing about that, um, except maybe a little bit of lip service to make it seem like that was going on. But you quickly rehire a guy who's been marred by overseeing a cheating scandal and a old man who hasn't managed in ten years, and who was kind of over the hill when he left the game and has said some pretty out of touch things in the last few years when it comes to. Uh, baseball and uh, where sports fit into the world. And I'll just say it that way and say it kindly. So um, I don't know. I find that a little bit problematic, but that's just me. And then basketball, we're not settled yet on when basketball is going to start. Michelle Roberts, uh, head of the NBA Players Association, came out this week and said, we don't want to start in December. The players don't want to start in December. That's too soon. Now ownership is saying and the league is saying that they'll lose millions of dollars if they don't start in December, if they push it into January. So that's that's where we are. We'll see if that becomes an impasse or if that basketball and the NBA has a remarkable ability to work things out the way other sports are unable to. Uh, I think that's a credit to the Players Association. I think it's a credit to uh, the league office. Um We'll see what happens. But there's a bit of an impasse uh, brewing there. So that's uh, really, from a sports standpoint, that's that's the big stuff. Uh, Pretty unremarkable NFL weekend, in my opinion, this weekend. Um, Not a lot to to talk about. Um, Even as a Steelers fan, I'm not super amped up about the win over the Ravens because – I don't know. I'm just out of touch with this uh, this Steelers team, frankly, and the game was a little bit sloppy. So – um, I wasn't super amped up uh, about that. Um, my boy Justin Herbert looked good yesterday, but they lost. The Chargers lost. Not that I'm rooting for the Chargers, but Herbert did look good. And I'm not going to toot that horn too much this week. You guys know how I feel. Uh, card purchases. Let's get into cards. It is Mountain State Cardboard after all, and I'm ostensibly here to talk about cards. And that's what we are going to talk about. Uh, and uh, this week's purchases lead directly into 
the main segment of the show today. I didn't really have the opportunity to consume a lot of hobby content this week, so I don't have much to say on that front, um, but uh, probably get back into that uh, next week. The, the one thing I will say is uh, Sports Card Analytics posted a really great video where Sports Card Analytics and Sports Card PT break down Tua and uh, uh, his outlook in Miami based on the injury and based on analytics. I would highly recommend you check that out. It's really great viewing, and that's the kind of content that we need more of in this hobby. It, it needs to be more about the players themselves and the analytical outlook and the health outlook and less about uh, you know some knucklehead talking about um, what the next hot card is going to be. And, you know, pulling names out of hats. This is thoughtful. This is well-researched. There's, there's, there, this is the kind of content we need more of in the hobby. So check it out. Uh, Sports Card Analytics YouTube channel is where you'll find it. Uh, Jordan and Chris uh, doing a great job of breaking down Tua and his uh, potential outlook. So there's your content shout-out for the week. It's just one, and I, that's, it, it was a slow week for me from a content standpoint. Busy with work and didn't have a lot of time to listen to my usual podcast rotation or watch uh, the YouTube uh, videos. There's, uh, there's even a, uh, uh, a sports card investigator, uh, a new show hanging out there that I have only watched the first few minutes of because I got sidetracked when, it's, when I started it and I haven't finished it yet. So uh, Andy uh, has posted a new video. I've got to check that out. So hopefully I'll, I'll get something. Uh, I'll get that while, and we'll talk about it next week. But uh, Andy's content is always... Uh, spot on. So let's get into this week's purchases. I'll start with, I picked up four uh, new additions to the the Damian Lillard PC, um, one of which, I, I like them all, um, but one of which I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty jazzed about. Uh, let's see, I picked up uh, the 1920 Optic Pink Hyper Hollow. Uh, I picked up the uh, 1819 Silver Prism Disco. And the 1819 Optic Blue Velocity. I think the Blue Velocity, they're just sharp-looking cards. Um, but the one, the, the fourth card, uh, the 2016-2017 Totally Certified Energizers Totally Blue Parallel, numbered 20 out of 99. It's a beautiful card. Uh, it just, the, when the light hits it, it's really gorgeous-looking uh, card. And it's numbered to 99, so the scarcity is baked in. It's just a really cool-looking card and one that I was really happy uh, to pick up uh, in the last week uh, for the Dame PC. Enjoyed that card and enjoyed uh, getting that card out of the envelope and, and taking a look at it and, and sort of rolling it around in my hand to see the way the light hits it. Super cool-looking card. I'll post some pictures on my Instagram later today. Uh, then the other uh, thing that I picked up this week for the PC, the one that I'm most excited about, I picked up two vintage football complete sets. And I'm going to get into that as we progress into the main segment of today's show. Um, but it all is a part of me hitting the reset button on my collecting um, and keeping cards that matter to me and being willing to let go of the cards that don't uh, have that meaning to me. You know, some cards I'll keep that may, may have less meaning, but I see them as um, valuable assets that I anticipate will become more valuable over time. So 
I'll hold on to those and, and sort of let those appreciate. But there's just so much stuff. And I've talked about this the last several shows as I've progressed into this stage of my hobby life where I'm, I'm willing to let things go. And it's that, that mantra of that. I'm, I'm really trying to, uh, to get into wholeheartedly that mantra of sell everything you don't love and start over. And I'm hitting the reset button. And part of this too has been fun because it's, it's caused me or it's led me to really sort through my PC with a fine tooth comb. And that's, that's been a real benefit. That's been the real benefit of this for me so far. When was the last time you physically held your cards. When was the last time you sorted through your PC and physically held or touched at look or looked at your card? Maybe they're in pages and you can't hold them, but individually looked at your cards. When was the last time you did that? Because for me, in a lot of ways, it's been a long time. Like there are the things that I've I'm, I've been adding to and sorting through and and. Uh, sort of recategorizing and, and, you know, so I've, I've been through, but I'm going through boxes of cards that I haven't touched in a very long time and it's fun. And sometimes you come across a card and you think, ah, there's a memory attached to this one. So I got to keep this one, but, or man, this is a beautiful card. I hate to let this one go. You know, some, somehow, some way that card has meaning to you. So you keep it. So that's been a real benefit of this new mindset that I'm in is that it's forced me to, uh, go through my cards and look at my cards. And they're not just these mountains of white monster boxes uh, in another, like nameless, faceless, generic white boxes in another room. They're open on a table and I'm going through them and I'm looking at them. And that's been fun because I remember things. Um, by the way, side note, I said something about pages. I'm a top loaders guy. I don't have the only thing that I have really in albums are complete sets that I can arrange numerically. And this is part of like where how my mind works and how I have to keep my stuff. So for me, it's top loaders in monster boxes over pages, mostly because I have this need for structure that is date or numerically driven. Like if I wanted to put my Grant Hill PC in binders in pages and binders, I would go mad because I would be moving those cards around too much and then potentially damaging them because I would get something that would have to go in before two or three other things. And then I'd have to move things around or I'd have to leave a ton of blank spaces. And I don't necessarily want to do that because there's not enough definition to it. So I put everything in top loaders and put it in monster boxes. That way it can be moved around easily and, and kept in some type of order that makes sense to me. And some of you may think that I'm crazy, but for me, that's a big part of it is like the, the, the order of things. So binders are great for me for complete sets because, you know, you're going one to 550 or however many cards are in the set. And if you've got a blank space, you can leave it because you know exactly what goes in there. But that's really all that binders are good for, for me is something that I know has a a defined numerical or date arrangement. So anyway, side, that was a, a a total sidebar. Um, So I say it all the time, sell everything you don't love and start over. But that means that reciprocally, what I'm buying has to fit that same philosophy. 
if I'm selling everything I don't love and starting over, that means that I should really only be, in my mind, buying things that I love. I'm buying things that have meaning. I'm buying things that have some type of significance to me. And that brings me to the two additions to my PC this week. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've already seen this, but I picked up the 1980 and 1981 Topps football complete sets. I'd been looking for these for a while, and I finally found a a deal on eBay uh, that made sense to me. Uh, And I actually had had found a, a, a good deal on the 81 set. And then I started looking at the seller's other items for sale and saw that he also had the 1980 set available. So I messaged him and made an offer that I thought was fair. And listen, I've not really talked about eBay strategies too much. I don't participate in a lot of auctions for two reasons. One, I'm real big on instant gratification. It's a personality flaw. I can't I can't wait four days to 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 see if I get a card, uh, and I tend to get busy and forget that auctions are ending. Um, but then also the other problem that I have with auctions is I'm so tired of getting sniped at the end, right? So I'm I'm a big buy it now guy. The things that I sell, I sell buy it now. Um, I don't run a lot of auctions. Um, but when I buy, I would rather just buy it now, and if, and and most sellers will accept reasonable offers. And I try to be fair with my offers. I don't go into the offer-making portion of this trying to get one over on the seller. We're all here to make money to a certain degree, and we're all here to collect to a certain degree. Like, it's a community. And I don't want to go out and start screwing people in the community or feeling like I'm trying to win big. I think there's room in all of these transactions, and I'm sorry if this sounds a little preachy, but I think there's room in all of these transactions for everybody to walk away happy. So to get back to this, I found the 81 set for a reasonable price, and I knew I was going to make an offer because I thought it was a little overpriced and I could get it for a better price and we could all walk away happy. And then I noticed that he also had the 80 set. So I comboed offered. He accepted. It was a smooth transaction. I had the cards in hand in three days. It was super great. And I left the guy great reviews because it was just a super easy and pleasant transaction where I think we both were very happy with, I was happy with what I paid for it and he was happy with what he bought for it. So guys, when you're going into these, don't make ridiculous low ball offers that insult people. And remember that these guys are just trying to make a little money too. And it's everybody can walk away a winner if we approach this with the right mindset. Anyway, way off topic. So why are these two sets so uh, significant to me? Why are these two sets so important to me? The 81 set specifically, the 80 set too. And, and when I got it and started leafing through it, so many things came rushing back. But the 81 was really the big ticket item here. I mean, as you know, the Joe Montana rookie card is in there. But um, why are these sets so important to me? You know, I grew up a Steelers fan. I've talked about that at length on the show. 1980 and 1981 represent, in retrospect, the beginning of the twilight era of that dynasty. They had just won their fourth of four Super Bowls, Super Bowl 14. They beat the Rams 31-19. Um, the following, so 
1980. So that would have been, you know, January of, of 1980 after the 79 season is when they won the fourth Super Bowl. 1980, Steelers go 9-7. and seven. 1981, they go 8-8. Eight and eight. The legends were starting to age. That dynasty was coming to an end. But they were, in my mind, at that time, at the peak of their powers. I mean, you think about the names on that team. Bradshaw, Franco, Mean Joe, Jack Lambert, Jack Ham, Mike Webster, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, Elsie Greenwood, Dwight White, Rocky Blyer. These were my heroes when I was six and seven years old. These men were larger than life to me. So the 1980 Steelers cards and the 1981 Steelers cards, this was sort of the end of... Now, some of those guys still had good seasons into the mid-80s before retiring. But for a lot of these guys, this was it. Like, this was the zenith. Um, I tend to like the the pictures of the, the Steelers players specifically in 1980 a little bit better. They have a little bit more visual appeal. Uh, the 1980 Terry Bradshaw, he's seated on the bench. He looks exhausted and looks like he's gazing off into the distance of the field. Um, the Franco Harris 1980 card, he's on the sidelines. It's a little bit dark. And he's got the, and you don't see this really anymore, but he's got the big long overcoat that fits over the uh, shoulder pads that almost looks like a superhero cape, right? Like we all remember that from the the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, the big overcoat that fits over the shoulder pads and looks very squared off. Uh, and he's got this just um, very dark emotional look on his face. So the, Fra- the 1980 Franco card is just a very sweet looking card to me. Um, so, th- so those sets were important because of those players. And I, I, I have a lot of very fond memories tied up in those cards and those players. And, you know, as a kid growing up and where I grew up, I was in the Pittsburgh television market, lived in West Virginia, but we were in the Pittsburgh television market. So you got a lot of Pittsburgh content. And that's part of the reason that there were so many Pittsburgh fans plus proximity. I mean, you could go to three river stadium in an hour and a half from where I lived. You could be at the stadium. Um, I don't think clearly had enough appreciation for how good I had it at the time. I mean, you talk about within a 12 month span, two Super Bowls and a world series from 1979 to 1980. So you had the 79 and 80 Super Bowls and sandwiched in between was the 79 world series. The, The pirates beat the Orioles in seven games Willie Stargell was the MVP. That was the We Are Family Pirates. That was like that was the that was the golden age of Pittsburgh sports. And none of us knew how rapidly that would decline and and especially the Pirates would just fall off the cliff for a while. Um, so all of these things are in my head as I'm unpacking and flipping through the binders that these these two complete sets came in. So then you talk about 1981, and then there's the Montana rookie card. And that's also special to me because Joe Montana was the first non-stealer who reached favorite player status for me. Um, And he was my mom's favorite player, too, although I'm pretty sure for very different reasons. I think she just thought that Joe was easy on the eyes. But my mom and I would bond over that in in years to come. She even had a Montana jersey that she would wear. Um, And she was a Steelers fan, too. But... We both gravitated to Joe Montana, and, and he, 
he became a player that we both rooted for. And I think it says something, too, about how I I do have an affinity for a dynasty. And what happened with the 49ers in the 80s was very reflective of what the Steelers had done in the 70s. Um, So that Montana rookie card in 1981 is very special to me as well. Um, Also, to be clear, I just want a sidebar here. Um, I was never a 49ers fan. I was always a Steelers fan, but I loved Joe Montana when I was a kid. And it's funny now to look back on that because uh, adult Tim would never allow that to happen, uh, mostly because Joe Montana went to Notre Dame. Uh, And i sorry to all my Notre Dame fans out there, but I just can't do it. And it's all because of 1989. Well, 1988-89. 1988, the WVU Mountaineers have their best season in history. They go undefeated, and then they lose to Notre Dame in the 1989 Fiesta Bowl, um, ending the best season in, in my alma mater's history. But I digress. I would never give Joe Montana the time of day now, uh, but back then, Joe Montana was aces. One of the other reasons that these two complete sets are special to me is because I had them. Maybe not complete. I, I might not have had the complete sets back in the day, but originally, out of Wax Pack, I had so many of these cards. You know how you can think back and specifically remember the cards that you had in your collection when you were a kid? I mean, that can't just be me. We all have that ability to think back and say, oh man, I had that card. And 1980, 1981, and 1982, and that's my next target, is the 82 complete set with the um, uh, the second year Montana where he's on the phone on the sidelines uh, and the Lawrence Taylor rookie, among others, in 82. But anyway, I had these cards. I had them. In 1987, I traded all of my football cards, and I had a two big boxes of football cards, two big shoe boxes. One was a boot box and the other one was a fairly large shoe box full of football cards. And I traded them all away for two baseball cards. There was a local card shop. I'll tell this story because it also goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, be fair in your eBay transactions. Don't don't try to get over on anybody. So there was a there was a card shop, and I'm making air quotes right now that you can't see because this is a podcast and not video. Um, there was a card shop. It was actually a coin shop that, in the mid '80s, just like in a lot of places, the coin shop started to carry more sports cards and and sell sports cards. And it was really in my small town the only card shop, and it was actually in the next town over. So I traded. I didn't care for my I didn't care about my football cards because I was all in on baseball. This was 1987. Um, you had uh, the 87 top set. Everybody was looking for Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire and the Bo Jackson Future Stars card. And like baseball was booming in 87. And I loved baseball. I played baseball. Baseball, baseball, baseball was all I cared about. So I had these football cards that I'd been collecting and they were cool and I liked football. But I was all about baseball, and I was buying into the hype of how hot baseball cards were. And it was the summer, and I, I, I was all in on baseball cards. So I decided, and my parents did not get involved in what I did with my cards. My dad had no idea what it, my dad was not 
really a sports guy. He had no idea. My mom, she knew sports, but she didn't know cards. They didn't get involved. They just let me do whatever I wanted with my cards. They gave me a little allowance money to buy cards with. Um, and I earned money, you know, cutting grass in the neighborhood to buy cards with. Uh, but my parents didn't get involved other than my mom would drive me to the card shop because I was 13. I couldn't drive. Um, so she would drive me to the card shop. Well, I traded two boxes of football cards for two baseball cards. A 1972 Topps Roberto Clemente and a 1985 Roger Clemens rookie. Roger Clemens was one of my very favorite players. That 85 Topps rookie card was so hot in 1987. And Roberto Clemente was one of my grandfather's favorite players. He had recently passed. That 72 card is so, so important to me because the 72 set is beautiful. That Art Deco design, and that, that's actually next year's Topps Heritage is the 1972 design. So I'm super stoked because that's one of my all-time favorite sets. But he's very contemplatively tossing a ball in the air and looking down. And it just, that the, the emotion of that card, every time I look at it, washes over me. And I still have the one. I have a few of these in my PC because every time I see one at a, reason, at a reasonable price at a show, I pick it up. I just It's a thing for me. But I still have the one from the card shop that I traded all of my football cards. So I traded all of my football cards for these two cards, which I still have. And I got, I, I got killed in that deal. But at the time, I was happy. But now as an adult, I look back and I realize how poor that trade was, how much that guy got over on me. And I don't know if he did it on purpose or if I was just a willing uh, victim that allowed it to, I don't know. Uh, it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to break down the psychology of how that all went down. I just know that it did. And I, I, I no longer have, and I didn't care at the time and I didn't care for a very, very long time. Uh, but I've recently decided that I want to go back and rectify some of those mistakes. So I picked up the two sets this week and it made me so happy when I flipped through those binders and found all of these cards that I knew that I had had when I was a kid. So let's talk about the sets too, um, briefly before we wrap this up. Um, the 1980 set, um, significant cards. Uh, you have the Phil Sims rookie card in 1980. You also have Lester Hayes, uh, Oakland Raiders Hall of Famer, his first card. And I can't say rookie card because he actually came into the league in 1977, but 1980 was the first year that he appeared in a tops set. So that was his first card. You also have uh, significant cards of Walter Payton. You have a Clay Matthews rookie card, Steve uh, Steve Largent's second year card. Tony Dorsett uh, was just synonymous with football in 1980. Uh, Otis Anderson has a rookie card in 1980 as well. And then in 81, I've already talked about Joe Montana's the big ticket card, but you also have an Art Monk rookie, Dan Hampton's rookie card, Dwight Clark's rookie, Kellen Winslow's rookie card, and Mark Gastineau's rookie card. And while Mark Gastineau may not be the Hall of Famer that these other guys are, Mark Gastineau was an icon of 1980s football because he was the first real sack master, and he did it with flair and panache and a lot of emotion and exuberance, and he was larger than life. So the Gastineau rookie is uh, also a significant card. So 
these two sets came into my possession this week. These two sets will stay in my possession for a very long time. I don't have any uh, short-term desire to bust the setup and start piecing out the cards. Because right now, and this may change in the future, but right now, the two sets as a whole represent something very important to me. And they help me with that you know, connection to my youth and my sports memories, memories of my heroes, memories of card collecting. These two sets mean a lot to me. So they're staying in the PC as I continue my quest to sell everything that I don't love and start over. And I love these cards. Thanks for being with me, guys. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast, rate, review. Please tell your friends, if they're card guys, to give it a listen. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at WVCardboard. The website is WVCardboard.com. Hit me up on my email, WVCardboard at gmail.com. Connect with me. Let's have a conversation. I'll talk to you guys next week. Peace, love, and penny sleeves. Connect with Mountain State Cardboard on Instagram at WV Cardboard. Our theme music is performed and produced by John Ingram. Visit our show page on Anchor, anchor.fm slash WV Cardboard. This podcast is a member of the 3BG Podcasting Network, a production of 3BG Media. All rights reserved.